All right. You guys ready to look at the word? Let's do this, man. Let's go. So um, Matthew chapter 21. We are interrupting our series. We've been walking through the book of Numbers. The last four weeks, we've really been looking at the different attitudes um, that the Israelites have had um, complaining, negativity, criticism, racism, um, grumbling, doubting God. And so, but today I, I felt like it'd be fitting. We are moving into literally with the Passion Week begins today. And um, the Passion Week, the life of Christ. And so I, I wanted to kind of set our hearts, get our hearts ready for Easter and Good Friday. And so Matthew chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 11. Follow with me. Uh, This is what the Word of God says. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he shall send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. I love that. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foil of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The triumphal entry marks the last week of Jesus's earthly life. It is known as his passion or the passion week. Researchers have said that there were most likely two million Jews in Jerusalem during Passover season. A hundred thousand people on the Mount of Olives, directly east of the Temple Mount. Jesus rides a young donkey. He descends the Mount of Olives. And this is a direct messianic fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. It is a, is a, it's a fulfillment of prophecy and, and as Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives, the people or the crowds that day are shouting. They're lifting up their voices and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The palm branches are being waved, garments of clothing are being placed on the road to welcome their long-awaited king, the king that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents have told them about. The religious leaders are, at this moment, they're trying to silence Jesus' followers as they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. The Bible says that the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred up. 
The city, the whole city, not just one little pocket, not one little you know, neighborhood, the whole entire city of Jerusalem. Big old city. People were asking, who is this? Jesus rides into Jerusalem. The bulk of his ministry is behind him. The cross looms in the distance. His three-year earthly ministry is coming to an end. When you look at the totality of scripture, when you look at the gospel accounts and the life of Jesus, besides his virgin birth, besides his crucifixion, besides his glorious resurrection, I, I love how songs match up perfectly with what I'm talking about. I don't know. It must be a God thing, Steve, maybe, right? Um, he bore our cross. He beat the grave. This is our God, King Jesus. Come on now, right? Besides the crucifixion and the resurrection, there's no other incident in the life of Christ more well-known than the triumphal entry. Every gospel writer talks about it. So there's a, there's a, 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 a strong emphasis on this event. Because I think that this event in his life, this fulfillment of prophecy was so monumental, um, it should cause us to look at it, to look at the details. And, and let me just say this real quick. You know, oftentimes what I do on Sunday morning is I come to the word of God. I try to, okay, unpack it. Like find the meaning. There's always one meaning. Anytime you come to scripture, there's not multiple meetings. There's one meaning. Now, the liberal Christians will tell you, oh, well, it means multiple things. Wrong. Let me, agree. Let me give you a Greek word for that. Baloney. Baloney. Okay? There's one central meaning. It's the authorial intent. What is the author of Scripture guided by the Holy Spirit conveying through words? There's many applications, but there's one meaning. So today, what I try to do is I try to come to the text, okay, what does it mean? And then how, do I, how can I explain that in a way where it's understandable? Because the simple truths of the Bible should be simply shared. The Bible is simple truths. I mean, Jesus said, right, the, have, have the faith of a little child, and, and the kingdom will will explode in your life. You will be a part of the kingdom of God. So I try to explain the meaning and give application. But today, it's going to be top heavy on that which is vertical and less on the horizontal applicational component, right? Is everyone okay with that today? Everyone? Okay. So sometimes vertical, it has high application. It, it should cause us to worship, to cry out, to surrender, to adore Jesus, to be more passionate for him, right? When we encounter the deep doctrinal theological truths in the Bible. So let me set the stage for you real quick. We're gonna go back for a moment and I just wanna give context. I wanna give a run up to kind of where we're at. Anytime you come to the scripture, you need to understand, okay, well, okay what has happened before and what's happening after? But we're gonna look at what's happened before. Sometime before Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, he raises Lazarus back from the dead. He passes through Jericho. He encounters Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. And, and people were trying to block him, right? 
That's what people do. People try to block you from encountering Jesus. They try to block you from knowing him. And, and his, his eyes were open. Jesus in, uh, encountered the mob boss, Zacchaeus. Now, let's pick up the story, Matthew 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Now, John, the gospel writer John, gives us insight into what's happening behind the scenes. When you come and you look at the Gospels, I feel like I'm teaching like a hermeneutics class today, but when you come and you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, it's like a car accident, right? And, and you have different witnesses, different, they see different parts of the crash. It's same crash, but they may have a, a, a slightly different angle view. This is, so John is giving us an angle that we're not getting from Matthew. Look at John chapter 11, 55 to 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Jerusalem at this moment is jam-packed with people. The religious fervor of the city was at an all-time high. And the people are whispering, hey, hey, is Jesus here, man? I've heard about him, you know, I've, I've met someone who you know, he performed a miracle on, or, you know, have you seen him? Do you think he'll come to the feast? And the Pharisees then say, listen, if you see him, we want you to arrest him. They had informants with boots on the ground. They were waiting to stealthily arrest Jesus. Two million Jews in Jerusalem for Passover and they're waiting for one single man because he's, he's made some really bold claims about who he is. He said he's God, he said he's the Messiah and no uncertain terms. But, but John tells us in John chapter 11 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And we know that that's referencing God's people being delivered from Egypt. It's, Passover was a memorial. It was a remembrance. It was a feast of the Jews that God passed over the Hebrew homes. The blood was applied to the doorposts. And the firstborn child and beast were spared, but not the Egyptians. John 12 verse 1. Six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Sunday, on Saturday he goes to Bethany, hangs out with the family, and it's there that Mary anoints Jesus with a costly oil, an alabaster flask, and she broke it and poured it on his head and anointed his feet with her hair. The gospel writer Mark says it was more than 300 denarii. It was nearly a year's worth of wages. It's an act of worship. It's an act of, of surrender. What are we giving to Jesus? What are you personally surrendering? What are you sacrificing? What are you going all in on? How are you following Christ? Following Christ should cost you something. Discipleship, discipleship requires a cost. Yes, Jesus paid the payment, but when you become a follower of Christ, there is a price to be paid to follow Christ. There, there is a price. 
Sometimes there's rejection when you're trying to share the gospel with someone in your oikos, some maybe family members that don't know Jesus. They, they just don't understand how you could worship this Jewish itinerant rabbi who shed his blood for your sins and somehow that's going to get you to heaven. Sometimes those conversations are very uncomfortable. It should cost us to follow Christ. She's displaying an act of worship, right? Following Christ is not easy. We should be like her. We should offer humble, sacrificial devotion and love and worship to Jesus. Let's pick it up in John 12, 9 to 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So at this moment, Jesus is famous. His popularity is at an all-time high, especially now that he raised Lazarus back from the dead. Can you imagine having a conversation with Lazarus or hearing from someone that, hey, just want to let you know, like, this is crazy, but, you know, Lazarus was dead, and Jesus showed up and brought him back to life. I mean, can you imagine how fast the news spread? I mean, quickly, people were learning about Jesus. I mean, I just can't even imagine what that would be like today. I mean, that would be the talk of the town, talk of the city, talk of the state, that national news. People would be wondering, who is this Jesus? And that's exactly what they said. Who is this Jesus? Which is a, it's a question that we have to answer for ourselves. Who is he? Who is Jesus to you? Lazarus was raised from, from the dead. Some people believed. Some people snitched. Some people went to the Pharisees and they snitched on Jesus and, you know, they were always snitching on him. But the miracle spread like wildfire. It caused a frenzy. The religious elites wanted to kill Lazarus. Now look at Matthew chapter 21. This takes us to our core text. So set the stage. This is what's happened. You know, Lazarus came back from the dead People are waiting for Jesus. They're waiting for Lazarus. They, they want to kill both of these guys. The Pharisees, they got boots on the ground. Hey, man, we, we got to do something about this guy. So listen, we think about the triumphal entry. We think, oh, you know, it's just, it's just this beautiful picture. Well, yeah, in a sense it is. From his followers, it's beautiful. It's, it's worship. It's the people are adoring Jesus. They've been waiting for him. Many of the people may have never even met him, seen him. But there was another group of people that were, they hated Jesus. And they were waiting to, to pounce on him. They were waiting for their moment to get their hands on him. Matthew chapter 21, let's look at the passage again, verses one to seven. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied uh, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Here's point number one. Jesus revealed that he is the son of God by orchestrating the events of Palm Sunday. Picture the city of Jerusalem. Whether you've been there in person, you've seen it with your eyeballs, or or you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, photos in a book, or on the internet. Jerusalem, directly east, is the Kidron Valley. And then you have the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is adjacent to the temple. Bethphage and Bethany are both located on the southeast slope of the Mount of Olives, probably two miles from Jerusalem. Bethany was the hometown of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus would often go there and retreat and spend time with them. And, and, the, and the story tells us that he sends two disciples into a nearby village, most likely Bethphage. And this, this wasn't some whimsical, spur-of-the-moment decision that Jesus made. Here's what Jesus was doing. He was demonstrating omniscience. He was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He tells the two disciples, go to the next village. You're going to find a donkey there. And and there's going to be a colt. Untie it and bring it back to me. The disciples were like, "Um, hey, Jesus, um, time out real quick in the conversation. Uh, What if uh, the owner says no, right? What if the owner says no, not going to let you do that, right? Jesus says, just tell them the Lord needs it. Here's what's amazing. Jesus is aware of all the details. He's aware of the location of the town. He's aware of what to take from the town. He's aware of how the owner will respond. He's even giving them instruction on how they should respond. Because Jesus is the son of God, And he's God wrapped in human flesh. He's omniscient. He knows all of the details. But he doesn't just know all the details then. He knows all the details now in your own life. He's aware of all the details. He's aware of your past. He's aware of your future. He's aware of it all. And this is why why God's sovereignty is so foundational for our faith. God is aware. But he's not just aware. God is sovereignly in control. So when bad things happen to you, when people sin against you, when things happen to you and you just don't understand what's going on, just know that God is sovereign, right? Nothing happens to you outside of God allowing it to happen. You know, I like to say everything is filtered through the Father's hands, right? You know, I don't know about you, but... Sometimes I got to check the oil in my car. Anybody, like, anybody have to do that sometimes? You got to open the hood up and you take the cap off. And, you know, back in the day, I used to try to, you know, get the oil and, and time it, you know, not just time it, but perfectly drop it into the oil hole, right, without a funnel. Bad idea. Bad idea because if you don't, if you don't do it perfectly, you got a whole mess to clean up. But you put that funnel in there, right? And then you can easily pour the oil in the funnel. You know, God's will, it's like a funnel in your life. God is allowing or God is intentionally pouring things into your life. Everything is on purpose for a purpose. Nothing happens to you out. Nothing is a surprise to God. 
So when people sin against you, you sin against people and there's consequences or there's trials, just know that God is aware, God cares, and he's orchestrating all of it in your life. The events of Palm Sunday reveal who Jesus is. He is the son of God. He's wrapped in, he's God, the God-man wrapped in human flesh, right? It shows his, his deity. He's, he's more than just a good man. You know, our culture says, well, he's just a good man. He's just a good teacher, right? Some, oh, he was a moral reformer. He was a social revolutionary. No, he is the son of God. This is what Peter said, right? When Peter was confronted, who, who do you say that I am? Right? They were, the scene was the gates of Hades and Caesarea Philippi, where there's pagan worship. And it was, to, it was believed that there was these, these um, godlike fertility gods coming out of these, the cave. And, and it was up against the backdrop that Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are Christos, you are Messiah as believers today. There are some things that we can give on when it comes to non-essentials. There are a lot of non-essentials. The problem is, as believers, we make non-essentials essentials. You know, there's black and white, and guess what? There's a lot of gray. There's a lot of gray, but what we, what we try to do as believers, we try to paint the gray with black or white. When it comes to the essentials, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the exclusivity of the gospel, the inerrancy of scripture, the resurrection of Christ, we have to hold the line. We live in a culture where people are caving spiritually. They're compromising the gospel. I don't remember the last time I yelled that loud. <laughs> people are compromising. Pastors are folding because their heart is not in building a church by the grace of God. They're trying to build a crowd. Listen, I've got faults and failures. I'm not, I am so imperfect as a pastor. But my desire and my single aim is to point you to Christ and to share the Bible to be unashamed about it. As believers, we have to be unashamed about who Christ is. He's the son of God. And because he is the son of God, he rules and reigns. He calls the final shots. Let's pick up in Matthew chapter 20, 17 and 19. It says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and, and he will be raised on the third day. Listen, sometimes we read this and we just kind of gloss over it because we've read it so many times. Listen, here's what he's doing. He's predicting his death. Not only is he predicting his death, he's predicting his resurrection. Who can do such things? Only if you're the son of God. Only if you're the second person of the Trinity. Only if you're the agent of creation who flung the stars into the universe, who created the galaxies, who scooped out the oceans, who formed the mountains. Only God could do this. He predicted his death. He's predicting his future glorious, victorious 
resurrection that beats death. Jesus is saying, hey guys, let me, let me let you in on something that's gonna happen. Let me pull back the veil. Let me show you, I am going to Jerusalem and I'm not gonna be this political king. I am going to be a suffering servant. I'm gonna give my life for you. And that's the good news of the gospel. Christ is saying, I will beat death. I will beat the grave. I will beat hell. And I will come back to life on the third day. Matthew 21, four to five. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, and the foil of a beast of burden. All right, here's our second truth. Here's our second principle. Man, it's kind of hot in here. I'm getting kind of tired. <laughs> Holy moly, man, I guess I should wore a T-shirt. All right, number two, point number two if you're taking notes. If you're not taking notes, and your neighbor's taking notes, hey neighbor, tell your neighbor to take notes, all right? <laughs> all right, all right, just joking around. All right, Jesus revealed that he is the Messiah by fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Verse five of Matthew 21, in your Bible it may be indented. It is a direct quotation from the book of Zechariah. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies that were given in scripture, hundreds of them. There are prophecies yet to be fulfilled that Christ will fulfill someday. He fulfills this messianic prophecy that was written down, check this out, it was written down five centuries. Someone say five centuries, five centuries, 500 years. Before Christ was born and placed in a cave, a little grotto, before he was born, kind of an inside joke, anyways, all right, Zechariah made this prophecy. Now, when it comes to scripture, how do you know that the scripture is true? I'm asking you. I'm walking up to you. Hey, how do you know the scripture is true? How do you, how do you know that Christianity is legit. I mean, we know what we believe, but we, do we know why we believe it? Can we defend it? Can we defend our faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints? Can we articulate clearly, not having all the answers, but we, can, we, can we clearly say, this is why I believe Christianity is true. I like to use the word maps, M-A-P-S, manuscripts, Archaeology, prophecy, scripture. There are manuscripts, thousands of manuscripts, dating different periods of time. And guess what? Do, do not listen to people who say, well, you know, the Bible was, you know, translated and it was changed. Listen, the inerrancy when it comes to original manuscripts, but I'm talking like finite, minuscule, like changes, like commas and stuff. When you take... God's word, 66 books, right? 39 old, 27 new, and you put it together, it's this beautiful, perfect puzzle. That's what it is. Any puzzle lovers in the house? Come on, don't be ashamed. I find that puzzle lovers are kind of ashamed to raise their hand a little bit, right? Hey, puzzle lovers, any of you ever 
went out, bought a puzzle box, brought it home, and you tackled that thing for weeks or months or years. And you finally got to the end and there's one single piece missing. Yeah? Well, here's my response to you. You wasted all that time. Because if you really wanted to know what it looked like, just look at the box cover. No. The Bible is this beautiful puzzle. And guess what? There's no pieces missing. God has preserved his word. He not only inspired his word, he preserved his word. So you have manuscripts, you have archaeology. You can go to places mentioned in the Bible today. You can see with your eyes. What was the next one? Prophecy. That's what we're talking about, right? Scripture is the, the power of Scripture to change someone's life. No other world religion does that. Christianity, the disciples were willing to give their life. They were willing to die for what they saw, for what they handled, for what they heard, and the time they spent with Jesus, what they believed to be true. Jesus is saying, I have fulfilled a scripture 500 years ago that was predicted about me. He fulfills it, Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So Zechariah's telling the people of Israel, God, he's coming. He's coming. But they had to wait 500 years. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of, of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We know, we know that Christ will rule and reign everywhere forever. You know, you look at our society, you look at everything that's going on, and there's moments where I just say, Lord Jesus, come. Lord Jesus, come. We need you, Christ, to come and rule and reign over the hearts of your people and over, the, over this world, the ungodliness and the, and the injustice in our society. You know, everyone knew that this day was coming. There was great significance, that there would be a Messiah, and he would, he would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, it was a symbol of, of peace. No one rode a donkey into battle in the Old Testament. You wouldn't do that, right? I mean, I guess if you did, you're going to be dead. No one rides a donkey into battle. They ride a war horse, right, or a chariot. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Just like Solomon was coronated as king, Solomon was on a donkey. Jesus is a greater Solomon. He comes on a donkey. He comes into Jerusalem, symbolizing that he brings peace. He's the prince of peace. That's what he is. That's who he is. What does this prove? It proves that he's the Messiah. Fulfillment of prophecy. He purposefully, intentionally fulfilled this prophecy. The long-awaited Messiah of the Jews. He's come. You know, that we know the disciples, they were, they were expecting this political warrior, this, this king, he's gonna set up his kingdom and there's gonna be kingdom boundaries and, and he's gonna exercise his authority. But Jesus comes in, 
not in a forceful way, but he comes in humble and gentle and patient. Listen, Christ is not going to force his way into your life. He's not going to barge his way into your life. Is he going to pursue you by the Spirit? Yes. Is he going to connect you to people that know the gospel and love him and love you? Yes. Does God use his word to bring about conviction of sin? Yes, the Holy Spirit does that. But God is not going to force his way into your life unless you are willing to surrender, unless you're willing to cry out, recognize your sin. Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Opening the door, that's That's an act of saving faith. That's you saying yes to Jesus. And then God will step in and and, and he'll dine with you. You know, you look at the scriptures. Jesus is a greater Moses. So he's a greater prophet, right? Uh, Jesus is greater David. He's the greater king, right? When you look at these three words, he's prophet, priest, and king. In your relationship with Jesus, if Jesus is not king of your life, if you say, okay, he's going to be prophet and he's going to be priest, but he's not going to be king, if he's not king, you haven't surrendered everything to him. Because a king demands everything, right? A king owns everything, right? If you don't see him as king, you won't share the gospel because you don't believe that he's the owner of, of your mouth and your lips. That you're a steward of the gospel. You're stewarding this treasure. Maybe you don't see him as priest. Maybe you don't see him as priest. We know that Christ came and, and he fulfilled Old Testament law and he's our priest. He stands in the gap. He intercedes for us. He takes our sin and our burdens and our prayer requests to the Father. He stands in the gap. He intercedes for us as sinners. If he's not priest in your life, if you don't see him as your priest, you're gonna beat yourself up. You're gonna beat yourself up over your sin. It's, you're gonna try to live a life of moralism. You're, just gonna be, you're gonna just try to be a good moral person. But listen, there's nothing you can do about your sin but confess it to Christ and take it to the Father. He's your priest. He stands in your gap. Maybe he's not your prophet. If he's not your prophet, then the Bible's not true. Truth is relative. Truth is subjective. But if he's prophet and priest and king, then you hold to the Bible being true. You believe that he he is interceding for you and he loves you. And he understands you and he cares for you. And he atones for all your sin. Doesn't matter what you, what you do. All the mistakes in the future, he atones. He makes payment. It's done. It's covered. It's taken to the bank. You're forgiven. And then if he's king, you surrender. You lay down your life and you follow him. Matthew chapter 21, 8 to 11. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Here's the next point. Jesus identifies himself as divine by accepting the praise of the people. Oh, the people were waiting for him. Like I said, they were waving palm branches and laying their clothes on the ground. And they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, literally Hosanna. Lord, save us. Lord, save us now. Give us salvation now. I wonder, as Jesus descended down the Mount of Olives, I wonder, thank you, Richard. Appreciate that. I wonder, as Jesus descended down the Mount of Olives, what was racing through his mind? Several years ago when I went to Israel, as we were walking down the Mount of Olives, when you get to the very top, right before you descend, you see Jerusalem there in front of you. You see the Dome of the Rock, the Temple Mount. And I walked down the Mount of Olives alone. And I just took it in. I took it in that, that day, in that moment. And I begin to think about that experience, what the triumphal entry must have been like. As Jesus heard the applause of the people, as he stole a glimpse to the north, and he saw a curious hill shaped like a skull, Golgotha, Calvary's Hill. And then in, in the distance is the Antonio Fortress where he would be taken and he would be beaten and mocked and scourged and flogged and spit upon. His beard would be torn where the crown of thorns would be placed upon his head where he would be made a public spectacle in front of 600 Roman elite fighters, professional executioners. I wonder if above the noise of the crowd, if he could hear the faint noise of the mallet from the Roman soldiers just days later, pounding the nails through his hands and his feet. As Christ was coming down the Mount of Olives, being omniscient, being the Son of God, being the Messiah, he knew what was in front of him. And he didn't run. He didn't get scared. Oh, he had some human moments in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was sweating drops of blood profusely. I mean, the, the agony was so intense. It was so real. I think Jesus experienced the cross twice. In the Garden of Gethsemane, I think he was experiencing the emotional, psychological, and physical effects of the horrors of the cross. And this is why he said, Father, let this pass cup from me. Cup symbolizing wrath. Every time you see the word cup in the Old Testament, most likely it is referring to wrath, God's wrath, God's judgment. Jesus said, Father, if you're able, let, this, let your wrath pass from me. He was willing to drink the cup. And he died for your sins so that you wouldn't die in your sins. That's why he died. That's why he gave his life for you and for me. 
The people are shouting and, and singing Hosanna. And the, the people had to have thought, our, our Messiah, he's here. He, he's here to give us freedom, political freedom. And they're chanting and they're singing Psalm 118, save us. It's a quotation, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the feastal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. They're literally chanting, Jesus, Messiah, save us, save us. But they wanted a political king. They wanted political freedom, political rescue. They didn't realize that they needed a savior. Hosanna for us, we need a savior. We need a savior. Only Christ can save you. Only Christ can, can forgive you of your sins. Only Christ can give you a, a restart in life. Here, here's the reality. The Bible is so clear about our eternity. There is a literal place called heaven, paradise. We will be in the presence of God, new heavens, new earth for eternity. We will be working and worshiping and serving, and I think eating some amazing heavenly manna, right? But then there's a literal place called hell. And if you die without Christ, if you die in your sin, you will suffer eternity apart from Christ. An eternity of agony, an eternity of regret, an eternity of just decomposition. I mean, literally, you just coming apart. Literally, and, and ultimately, those who go to hell, it's their decision. Hell, as C.S. Lewis says, hell is locked from the inside. Ultimately, hell is, God is giving people ultimately what they wanted. They wanted a life apart from him. Matthew 21, verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The children that day were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. They're applying this messianic title. We know that, that, that Jesus fulfills the Davidic promise and, and Jesus is the eternal king, forever king, and his kingdom will never end. He is king forever. The religious leaders understood it. They understood what was happening. And they were like, do you hear what, what they're saying? And Jesus said, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Sometimes people say, well, why did Jesus wait until now? to receive the praise and the applause of the people. Why did he wait? Why did he go so long? You know, all this time. I think there's a lot of reasons. I, want, I don't wanna get into all of them, but I wanna share one. Maybe this may have been the last opportunity to offer himself to the people of Israel as their Messiah King. Maybe this was the last opportunity the Passion Week, the last week of his earthly life, his last week of spiritual ministry, and he is crying out, and he's showing the people, I fulfill prophecies. Zechariah, 500 years ago, I am your Messiah. Fill in this point. Jesus is both heaven's king and suffering servant. 
The people that day were crying out, who is this, who is this? Oftentimes people are asking the same question. So be bold, be bold in your faith. Listen, there's gonna be a moment when you're gonna take your last breath and you'll never be able to tell someone about Jesus. People have a spiritual curiosity. They, they're wondering about who this, who this is, who is Christ, who is Jesus. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, nothing good came from Nazareth, Podunk town. It's not an accident that he comes into Jerusalem at the time of Passover when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered for the sins of the people. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Christ is our Passover lamb. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter one, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Old Testament Passover lamb was a shadow, was a type of, of what was to come. John the Baptist, when he saw his cousin Jesus, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The first Passover lamb, they applied the, the blood to the doorposts of their house. Christ came later. He's the true final Passover lamb. And the Bible says that if you apply his blood that was shed for you upon the doorposts of your heart, guess what will happen? God will forgive you. His judgment will pass over you. You will walk out of slavery from Egypt into freedom, into this newfound life in Christ. As believers, Let's be bold that Jesus is the Son of God, that he fulfills prophecy, and that he is worthy of our praise. Let's pray.